My name is Pastor Mike Landsman, and this is the podcast for Zion Stone United Church of Christ. This podcast is taken from my weekly Sunday morning sermons. I pray that as you listen to them, they will be a blessing to you and strengthen you in your walk with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here's what we have for today. O God, who before the passion of your only begotten Son revealed his glory on the holy mountain, grant that we, beholding by faith the light of his countenance, may be strengthened to bear our cross and to be changed into his likeness from glory to glory, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you, and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Flip over to Mark 9, verses 2 through 9. I'll give you a second to get there. And let's, uh, let me begin. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. This is the Lord. So thank you everyone for bearing with me with the series that we've been going through called The Church Is, Is Not. Some of these sermons may have been a little bit longer than what you've been used to. And uh, we've been dealing with some heavy issues. And I believe though that this series has been a necessary one. And one that we need to hear to shake us free of some of the baggage we've accumulated over the decades. And, and once the series is done, uh, we're almost there. We're going to be starting a new series through Lent called Reset. And in Reset, we're going to be looking at things like, what is scripture? What is scripture? Is it just a bunch of stories that we use to just kind of pull out useful morals to help us make good decisions and to guide our lives and to kind of make us better people? Or is it the word of God? If it's the word of God, what does that mean? We're going to ask, who is God? What is salvation? Uh, and so on. And so I'm looking forward to starting it and to you. And I pray that this series is not has been helpful uh, for you too. A lot of heavy stuff, but thank you for bearing with me and for sitting uh, with it. Hopefully it's been challenging and strengthening to you. Okay, so I was a little bit too old to be the target audience for this show. Um, but there was a really popular children's animated Christian show that started in 1993, and it's actually still around. And you may have heard of it if you have little kids. It's called VeggieTales. We have, I, th- I think, pretty much most people, if you're a Christian in some way, shape, or form, have heard of VeggieTales, or maybe seen it on Netflix. And uh, it actually came back up in the news again. There was somebody on on social media who's like, "I didn't know this show was about God. I'm not going to let my kid watch it ever again," which is pretty funny. Uh, so in VeggieTales, you know, you have Bob the Tomato, Larry the Cucumber, and Junior the Asparagus, and the Pirates Who Don't Do Anything. And um, they get into adventures, and they link those adventures with a, a Bible, a passage from Scripture, and a lesson. And each episode would end with one of the characters saying, Remember, special, and he loves you very much, which is a really good message to tell kids and to leave them with. And though this, uh, it, that actually was deleted when they aired it on NBC. They changed it to something like, thanks for coming over to our house and spending time with us. Uh, but the creator, a guy named Phil Vischer, who's a fascinating guy, he had amazing success with the show. 
But then something happened and the studio went, went bankrupt. And then it came out of bankruptcy again. And he was reflecting on the show. And he had a really stunning realization. Uh, and he said something in a 2011 interview I thought was pretty profound. He said this, I look back at the previous 10 years and I realized I had spent 10 years trying to get kids to, to behave Christianly without actually teaching them Christianity. And then in 2019, he said this. He said, it is so much easier to teach morality. It is so much easier to just tell a Bible story, pull a moral value out of it, and end with a Bible verse. There is value in that. That's kind of where everybody starts. But if you stop there, you're favoring the kids that are really good at following rules, and you're discouraging the kids who aren't because you never actually get to the message that leads to regeneration, that leads to new life, that leads to the fruit of the Spirit. And that's the core of the gospel. And that was sobering for me, for me to hear that, that realization that he had, that in their entertainment, that they were actually just teaching kids how to have morals instead of actually teaching them Christianity. I thought that was a really interesting thought that he had, and it kind of began to um, this sermon. So, and and this was sobering to hear, and, and it brought gratitude though that he had seen that and was taking steps to fix it in the latest iteration of the show. And and the trouble with moralism is that it takes shape just about on every side of the theological aisle, and it manifests itself in different ways. And moralism is dangerous because it brings with it a, a false sense of security mixed with uh, a deep dose of, of pride. And, and this can be a dangerous combination, and we need to be guard, on guard against that, right? As God is working for our transfiguration, not our moral transformation. So stick with me. We're going to talk about that this morning. There is a, I'm going to get, not too technical, right? But this is important. So there's a sociologist named uh, Christian Smith. And he had long periods, he did a long period of research into the spiritual life, the lives of American teenagers, and he made some important discoveries. And we also have to say, right, that, that this research into the spiritual life of American teenagers, he also had to note that, like, that, that this was directly also influenced by the parents and the way that the parents had brought up the, their, their kids. And so he made that connection. Uh, in, so it, his observations could probably be seen as, as applicable to adults as well as, as teenagers at the time. And this study is, I think, maybe 12, 13 years old now. But um, I think it's still the results of it are still playing itself out in our culture. So he coined a phrase that you may have heard of, may not have heard of it. It's called moralistic therapeutic deism. I'll say it one more time. Moralistic therapeutic deism. I've also anecdotally, I've heard this referred to as uh, um, Oprahfication, right? Because, you know, Oprah has these quasi generally sort of maybe kind of spiritual people on the show and just kind of talking in vague platitudes. Um, but here's a summary, right? Of moralistic therapeutic deism. Okay. Number one, there's a God who exists and he ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Number two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life 
except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And number five, good people go to heaven when they die. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, that doesn't sound so bad, right? No, that actually sounds pretty nice and respectable. And if the religion we practice wasn't Christianity, then you'd be right. Because this is a perfect system of, of sort of inoffensive, quasi-religious, soft and fluffy statements with no hard edges whatsoever, and no call to any sort of the challenges that the life in Christ and following his commandments ask of us. It's a perfect statement of faith for people who have experienced a brush with Christianity and maybe absorbed some of its insights before dumping what they didn't like for something less problematic. Now, there is a, a Catholic priest and author named Father Longnecker. He, he noted this in something he wrote. He said, in talking about moralistic therapeutic deism, he said, it's moralistic in replacing vital sacramental evangelizing Christianity with a set of rules and regulations. The therapeutic part of the de definition refers to replacing religion with therapy, the need for the religion to help me in some way and how we want our religion to make us feel good. Deism is the belief that God is out there and not really involved in our lives on a day-to-day -day basis. We believe in this distant God, but we do not have a regular transaction with him because he is disconnected and reverts to being a system of rules, regulations, therapy, and feeling good. And I think different Christian groups have fallen kind of prey to this. And, and in general, there's different Christian denominations and groups that have different sets of regulations and rules. And I'm speaking here in broad generalities, right? So on the more fundamentalist side of things, like your, your fundamentalist Christian is going to focus heavily on rules regarding personal holiness and separation from the world because you need these rules, 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 rules to prevent the possibility of anybody sinning at all, right? To the point where they almost become their own enclaves, their own little communities, not interacting at all with the outside world. It's sort of like a form maybe of bizarro monasticism, right? Monastics, when they go into into the monastery, right, they, they are separating themselves from the world, but they're still praying for the world and they're still interacting in some way, shape, or form with the world. But... With fundamentalism, it doesn't quite work out that way. Now, your more progressive Christian is going to focus heavily on a different type of moralism that casts off restraint to embrace just about everything in the name of Christian love, as long as they believe it falls into what's seen as, as just justice work or something like that. And so the tendency on both sides is to fall into a rigid fundamentalism and a rigid moralism that generates pride and a false sense of security in their own rightness, leading to what I described a little bit earlier. But what God is calling us brothers and sisters towards, what he's destined for us, isn't moral transformation, becoming a moral person along the lines of religious ideology that inevitably leads us into moralistic therapeutic deism. Rather, he has destined us for transfiguration. And in today's reading from the Gospel of Mark, we heard the story of the transfiguration of Christ. And the remarkable thing is that that transfiguration, that our own transfiguration will, will, will follow, obviously with some differences, right? Because, you know, the, we don't have to say this, but our, uh, you know, the Word of God incarnate, right? <laughs> None of us are, are God the Son incarnate, right? But still, Christ's pattern of transfiguration shows us something of our own destiny as well. 
Right, so I read the passage from Mark 9, verses 2 to 9 already. So I'm just going to just keep going, right? So in the in this account, right, we have at length already, I've been with you guys for four years, we've actually gone over at length in the past few years the Old Testament connections between Jesus leading Peter, James, and John up the mountain with Moses leading Aaron and a couple other guys up the mountain. Uh, we've talked about Elijah and Moses being representative of the prophets and the Torah and how Christ is superior and how both the law and the prophets testify to the identity and the divinity of Jesus Christ and his incarnation, death, and resurrection, how Jesus is superior to both of them. Uh, and this is a big deal, right, because these are two of the most important Old Testament figures. But we're going to forego digging more into that today. I'm going to focus on, 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 on seeing Jesus and hearing Jesus, as well as the pattern for our own transfiguration. And so some commentators note that in John's gospel, right, John doesn't have an account of the transfiguration, but he does say something like this in, in John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Right. So for John, John's kind of sets the transfiguration kind of in the background of the story, maybe. Like that, that seeing the glory of God as revealed through the faith, face of Jesus Christ. Um, the synoptics, though, focus on specifically on the event. And um, Jesus Christ on the mountain demonstrating what the writer of Hebrews can only be described as the effulgence. I love that word, effulgence. I think that's in the, the American Standard Version. It's not in the King James, but the effulgence or, or the, the radiance of the Father's glory and the very image of his substance and upholding all things by the word of his power. And, and, and his clothes, right in this account, it says they become white, whiter than anybody uh, could, could bleach. And uh, St. Bede, if anyone asks what the Lord's garments represent, typologically, we can properly understand them as posting to the church of his saints who at the time of the resurrection will be purified from every blemish of iniquity and at the same time from all the darkness of mortality. So he, he links here this what's going on with Jesus' garments with our own cleansing, our own freedom from sin, and uh, our own being freed from everything that mortality brings with us because in the scriptures mortality is a big deal right because the sin of adam and eve god says you if you eat of the fruit what does he say you shall die die death right death in sin are a big problem we focus so much on sin and rightly so but at the same time we also need to focus on death and our mortality and how christ comes to undo all of that so um it's important to note uh, a couple of things here in scripture. So I want you to turn, if you can, really quick to uh, Revelation 1, 13 to 16. It's all the way in the back of the New Testament. I'll give you a second to get there. Revelation 1, verse 13 to 16. It says this, And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, and with a golden sash around his chest, the hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And in his face was like the sun shining in full strength. So turn now over to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So what we see here in Revelation is, I believe, a much clearer view of, of the transfiguration of Christ, something that, that John glimpsed 
on the mountain. He sees it more fully um, with the vision of Christ uh, as he's in exile uh, on the island of Patmos. Now, 1 Corinthians 15, 42 to 43, St. Paul says this, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. He's talking about what it means, what the resurrection is in the state of our bodies. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. Okay, now flip over a few pages to Philippians chapter 3. So while you're flipping to Philippians chapter 3, St. Paul is talking about how our bodies are something where basically we, we are sowing. It, they are perishable. But what's going to happen to them is, is that they will be raised imperishable, right? We cast them off in dishonor. But what happens? is changed into glory. It is changed into glory. Our weak mortal bodies are raised, he says, in power in power philippians 3 20 to 21 our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior the lord jesus christ get this who will transform our bodies our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself so we are raised in the power of our lord jesus christ right our lowly bodies will be transformed something not the same right because he is created we he is uncreated and we as humans are, are created beings right but our bodies our transformation are being raised in power will be raised in glory according to the pattern that we see on the mountain right you see jesus and his humanity radiating for radiating forth uh, his divinity right so all that to say that our participation in the resurrected life of Christ is our own transfiguration as the journey from death to life begun at our baptism and in Jesus Christ and our faithfulness towards Jesus Christ, his own faithfulness to the Father through being made flesh and suffering for us is fully realized, right? And, and we also see that even though we're not becoming part of a morality training program, as we climb the mountain, right? I like to think of the, the church as the mountain where we ascend and we see God. It, the mountain could also be, uh, you know, uh, typologically could represent the Christian life, right? As we go through this. But I like to also think of the church as the mountain as we ascend, uh, as we ascend to the mountain, you know, because Christ is traveling with his apostles, right? As we travel the mountain, we see finally Christ uh, in, his, in his divinity. And I like to think of, of the church kind of as that mountain. So... So as we climb the mountain of the church and behold Christ and travel with Christ and listen to Christ and follow Christ, then we will start to find that our own morals have begun to become transformed. And that transformation is happening through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's pointing us then towards righteous living, which is so much more than rule following and trying to like establish systems of do this, don't do that. But what happens is our hearts are made alive, right? And when our hearts are made alive, as a foretaste of our own transfiguration and the age to come, we find ourselves then able to follow the commands of our Lord, leading us to a life of devotion. That's not following a system of rules, but also realizing that the commands of God are for our benefit and it enables us to actually live by them. It's a difference, right? So as a, 
moral transformation is not what we're aiming for. But as we're on our way to our transfiguration, moral transformation be a part of our spiritual journey. So turn with me really quickly to 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 through 6. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 6. And I'll give you a moment, a half a moment to get there. <clears throat> Excuse me. Some of you are flipping really fast. <laughs> it's okay. Go at your own pace. Go at your own pace. St. Paul says this in, in verse 3 of chapter 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel in the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servant for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Okay? St. Paul's words here, I think we can tie them a little bit with what's going on in the transfiguration story and our own transfiguration as well. And in the account in Mark, St. Peter, you know, he, being afraid, he starts to mumble nonsense and the voice of the Father has to butt in and basically say, hey, be quiet and listen. They ascended the mountain. They saw Jesus unveiled. They heard him talking to Moses and Elijah. They heard the voice of the Father. kept it secret until Jesus had risen from the dead because this was the missing piece that put it all into place for them about Jesus's identity, right? So, so, so now, how does the gospel get spread? And I'll say, well, through seeing and through hearing. Now, there's I've, I've an awful quote floating around attributed, I think, wrongly to St. Francis of Assisi. You hear it all the time. Um, Preach the gospel. If necessary, use words, right? It sounds great. It sounds profound, but it's, it's, it's just not, it, it's kind of horribly wrong, right? But there is something that's powerful about us living as Christians. Because as we live as faithful Christians, that means then that we are demonstrating the love of Jesus Christ in very real ways. But also, isn't it funny, right? Is that the, the people who aren't Christians are always the loudest who, who, who like to dictate how Christians are supposed to behave. I find this a, a wonderful irony, right? The, the one person who's not a Christian uh, knows, knows more than, anyway. We won't, we won't go there. So, I'd also argue that the place we also see Jesus is in the church, right? The, as the body of Christ. And we're actually going to talk about this in the series, the church as the body of Christ, and very soon. Sometimes the clearest view of Jesus for some people, though, isn't just the giving of food uh, or, or, or charity, though, though it is very clear. But sometimes the clearest view of Jesus is when I take the bread and the wine and I hold it aloft in front of you and I say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But, but, but something we see in, in St. Paul's words here, we see that there's something blocking this vision of Christ. And, and, and the, he puts it as the God, small g, of this world, Satan. He's blinded the minds of unbelievers to this vision of Jesus Christ. And so because their sight has been blinded, their ears have been blocked, what breaks that then is the proclamation, I think, of the gospel, which St. Paul goes on to say in another place, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And, and that proclamation of the gospel 
comes from a heart that has that has seen and received the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and is eager and willing to share that with others. So we see that our participation in the resurrected life of Christ is our own transfiguration as the journey from death to life begun on our baptism and kept by our faith and faithfulness to the Father through being made flesh and suffering for us is fully realized. We also see that even though we're not becoming part of a morality training program, what the church is. The church is not a training program. As we climb the mountain and behold and hear Christ and those who are his witnesses and follow Christ ourselves, then we will find that our morals have been transformed through the power of the Holy Spirit pointing us towards righteous living, which is so much more than rule following or anything that can be turned into moralistic therapeutic deism because it naturally springs from a heart that's been remade and redirected from the flesh towards what it was made for all along our union with God. As St. Augustine put it, what the sun is to the eyes of the flesh, that is the Lord to the eyes of the heart. Say it one more time. What the sun is to the eyes of the flesh, the Lord is to the eye of the heart. And may the Lord give us eyes to see, ears to hear. May our hearts be transformed by the power of the gospel. And may we become faithful witnesses as we have received his glory and have witnessed his glory. May we be able to then turn around and through our own lives and through what we say, witness to the ongoing transfigurative power of faith in Jesus Christ. And to Jesus Christ, our transfigured Lord and Savior, be all glory together with the Father and the Holy Spirit, now and forever. Amen. Thanks for listening to the podcast for Zion Stone United Church of Christ. If you have a few minutes, I'd like to ask you to go to gofundme.com slash zionstonechurchrepairfund. Our bell tower is in need of some major renovation and repairs, and we could use whatever help you're able to give to us. If you'd like to find out more about us, check us out on our Facebook page, Zion Stone UCC, or on our website, zionstoneucc.com. Thanks again for listening. I pray that these sermons will continue to strengthen you in your walk with Jesus Christ, and may the blessings of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be with you. Thank you.